Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. <clears throat> And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these things, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John MacArthur once wrote, Error always goes to church because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, infiltrates the system of religion, particularly Christianity, even true Christianity, and plants his seed of error there, and a gullible, witless, uneducated, undiscerning church becomes a victim. Semper reformanda. Always reforming. This is yet another Latin slogan that comes to us from the Reformation. And it's the idea that the church must continually always be reforming itself. And we'd have to ask the question, why? Well, because the church, which exists in a fallen, broken world and is itself composed of fallible human beings, has a tendency to lose focus on the foundation of our faith and to drift away from the centrality of the gospel. That is the tendency. And this is something that we have seen all throughout history, by the way. This is something that we saw during the Reformation in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Reformation was a response to the church moving away from, from the foundation of faith, from, from Scripture as a sole authority for the church. And the result of that was a development of tradition that undermines the gospel and undermines the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. But God by His grace and His providence, and through His sovereign hand, raised up men in history who worked to correct this. Hence, we have been given, if you remember, the five Latin uh, slogans, the solas. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, and sola scriptura. The truth that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of that is for the glory of God alone, all of which is made clear to us by our sole infallible authority, and that is Scripture alone. But with that, the issue of Christian church drift has not something that's just relegated to the 16th century. It's an issue that is ongoing. It's one that actually dates all the way back to the first century. And it continues to be an issue even today in much of the church at large, as we have talked about last week at, at great length. This is why I believe the slogan 
semper reformunda is just as valid today as it was 500 years ago. We must continually help the church locally and globally to remain centered on Christ and focused on the gospel of grace. We must be, in a sense, continually reforming. And in light of that, there are two things to consider this morning. Number one, we're in the process of changing our church logo that we have had for the last several years to, to this, right? And the reason for that is going forward, I want, to, I want to visually remind ourselves, right, of what our focus is. Now, notice the circle there. Inside the circle, what you will see, what appears to be an X overlaid with what appears to be a very fancy-looking P. This is the symbol called the Cairo. It's the Cairo. The chi is the Greek letter X, and the rho is the Greek letter uh, that looks like a, a P. And these two letters are overlaid like this. Actually, it was one of the very earliest of Christian symbols. This is how people identify themselves as Christians. Because the Cairo, I don't know if you realize or not, is actually the first two letters in the Greek word Christos. Christos, right? Which means Christ. This was the symbol of Christ, and this was a symbol of his church for, for centuries. Right? It's a symbol of Christianity. And notice, right, right, the small letters on, on either side of the X. These are the Alpha and the Omega. And this should bring to, your, to mind the words of Christ himself, who in Revelation 22.13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, theologically, these letters were added later in history to clarify who it is that Christ is. Right? Christ is... God in the flesh. We worship Him as the sovereign. Christ is divine. And so not only is this symbol a, a symbol of Christ, but it communicates a very high view of who Christ is. It, it re reflects a high Christology. And, and so the central focus of, of our logo now is Christ Himself, God the Son, which is the central focus of our church. And notice the position of how we placed the logo. The, the, the circle of the logo is centered above the name First Baptist Church. This position was positioned this way to help us to remember that Christ is the head of the church. He is above the church and the central focus and the central figure of the church. Christ is our supreme. And notice that the church rests then on the foundation of grace, truth, and hope. We know from the Gospel of John that Jesus Christ came into the world and He was full of grace and truth. And Paul tells us in this very letter that Jesus is our hope. And as His church and as His body, we must likewise be full of grace and truth. And the church must then be the hope of the world. And notice it says... It's harder to see, but at the very top, there's small letters that say established in 1938, right? That's when First Baptist Church right here was founded. But also then in that circle near the bottom, it says Semper Reformunda, right? Which means we are intentionally, uh, continually battling as a church the drift from the gospel that we are continually going to be at work keeping our eyes and our hearts and our minds centered 
on our hope, which is Christ and his gospel. And so when you see the new logo, right, hopefully it ought to remind you that the focus of First Baptist Church here in Boron is Christ himself and his gospel, and we will continually keep working to keep him and his word at the very center of our church and all of our individual lives as part of that church. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing is that in light of all of that, we are in a new sermon series titled First Timothy, the plan for church and life. And in this series, we're going to be working our way through Paul's first letter to Timothy in order for us to grow in our understanding of God's family, his church. In fact, in last, uh, the last time we were here last week, when we began this series, we talked about how Paul makes it very clear that the church is not a man-made institution. The church, rather, was created by God, and as such, it belongs to God. It is His household, His family. He tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The church belongs to God. And because of that, the church is what God says that it is. That the church is for what God says that it's for. And that the church is to do all the things that, Christ, that God says it is to do. Because it is His church. And as we learned last week, a couple, in just a couple of verses, the rule of the church belongs to God and God alone. It does not belong to man. And it certainly does not belong to the government. And the authority invested in the church and the authority invested in her leaders comes directly from God himself because he is the source of all authority. And all of our hope in the church and the hope that we have in the world is none other than Christ alone. Christ is our hope. And as his body, the church is the hope of the world. This, by the way, is what gives the church its mission, the hope of Christ. And then we learn that all blessings come from God. God is the source of all blessings, especially for those who find themselves in Christ. That's why last week we sang the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You see, the church is from God, the church is for God, and the church is all about God. God created the church as an instrument that He Himself wields in the world to accomplish His purpose for His glory. And all of us who are in Christ, the moment we were in Christ, were made part of that church, the body of Christ, and we are to live and we are to worship God in the church and as the church in a way that God himself has ordained for us too. And this letter to Timothy has a great deal to teach us about all of this because this letter was a call to reform a church that had lost its way a church that had lost sight of the centrality of the gospel of Christ, a church that had lost its focus on mission and for worship, a church that drifted away from its biblical foundation. And so in light of that, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we'll begin unpacking beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, As I urged you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. 
what we need to remember <clears throat> is this letter was written after Paul had left Timothy in the city of Ephesus to deal with issues in the church. You see, at the, at the end of the book of Acts, right, what we see is Paul is imprisoned in Rome where he continues to preach. Well, after that imprisonment, so we know that, that the book of Acts was written long before this letter was written. After his imprisonment in Rome, he was released, and he and Timothy went about the Mediterranean Sea on a circuit, checking up on all the churches that had been planted and all the churches he had ministered to. And one of the churches they stopped by to see was the church in Ephesus, a church that Paul had planted years before, and a church that he himself had pastored for three years. Right? And, and before Paul left, right, he had established a very strong uh, group of church leaders who were devoted to Christ and to the doctrines of the early church. But years before, before this, this return, right, before Paul was arrested, Paul warns the elders of this church when he saw them. He warns them that it would be very easy for them to lose focus and that the church could drift into grave error. In fact, in he says in Acts beginning in chapter Acts 20 beginning in 28 he says pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseer now I want you to understand this word overseer is the same word that gets translated in different areas as elder or pastor right it's the same office right in which the holy spirit has made you overseer to care for the church of god which is which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things and draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul prophetically warned the Ephesian church leadership they could slip into error and drift away from the gospel of Christ. And this could happen internally, and the people would then be led astray, which, by the way, is exactly what happened. Men from within the leadership of the church began to teach false doctrines. In fact, notice what Paul says. I urge you, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines. When Paul and Timothy arrived in Ephesus, the church was in great error. The church had major behavioral problems inside and outside of the church. The church had ordained unqualified people as leaders and elders in the church, and the result of that was false teaching in the church. And the church began to really drift from its Christ-centered foundation. And the first thing I want you to notice uh, there's actually a few things we need to see in this text. First of all, if you remember, Paul reminds Timothy in verse 1, in the very beginning of this, this letter, that he was made an apostle, how? By the command of God. Right? When Paul wrote that, he was making a point to establish the fact that God had invested direct authority into Paul, apostolic authority, and as such, as an apostle of Christ, Paul, through this letter, is now investing authority directly into Timothy. Right? He, he, said, he said, he urged him to stay in Ephesus. And, and notice what he writes next. He goes, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge 
certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The word that he uses here, charge, I want you to realize, is a military word. It is a word that's loaded with force and impact. It is a direct order, all right? By implication, Paul is giving Timothy the authority to give direct orders to the elders and the leaders of, of the Ephesian church. Paul is saying, Timothy, you now are in charge, and you need to command those elders and overseers of the church to stop teaching false doctrine. You need to command them. You need to order them. You need to put a stop to it. Now, how do we know that these certain persons that Paul is referring to at are, are elders? How do we know that they are actually the leaders or the pastors of the church? Well, we know this because of the function that they're serving in the church. They are teaching. You see, they're teaching false doctrines in the church. Right? They are teaching in the church. And understand, Paul is not talking about the kind of teaching you do with kids in kids' ministry that somebody's talking about. He's not talking about ladies' Bible study. Paul is talking about the teaching and the preaching ministry the ministering of the Word of God to the assembled body of believers, right? And this task was reserved only for the elders of the church, right? You see, the early church teaching and preaching to the gathered body of believers was only done by elders and pastors only. The deacons didn't preach. The lay members of the church didn't preach to the congregation. The elders and the overseers, the pastors, preached and taught to the assembled church. And so what we know is these men were elders and pastors in that church. Paul is telling Timothy that he has the authority to command these church leaders, these elders, to not teach certain doctrines. Now what does, what does that mean for us? This means the Ephesian church had major leadership issues. Just like Paul had predicted, the church had allowed unqualified men into the, the church leadership. He allowed unqualified elders to become, become leaders in the church. This, by the way, is why Paul, in chapter 3, he will take the time to explain to Timothy very clearly what the qualifications of elders and what the qualifications of deacons will be. Paul is going to direct Timothy to build up new leadership in the church, and, and he gives him and, and us, by, by extension, what the qualifications of these two leadership roles are for, for elders and deacons. But suffice to say, Ephesus was facing huge leadership problems, which, by the way, is a common problem in the church, especially now. One of the greatest problems facing the American church today is that far too many unqualified men are in positions of leadership in a church, especially when it comes to, to, the, to the elder part of the church, especially pastors. There are far too many self-appointed, self-anointed, self-ordained pastors in the church today. Far too many people have decided on their own that they're qualified to theologically lead God's people. Which is really a dangerous proposition, by the way. Probably the scariest job I've ever done. You see, the problem is is the church, by and large, has forgotten its role. What we need to realize is the church is not just to hire some pastor that they think might fit the bill, right? They're not simply just supposed to hire someone that, they, that, that seems legit on paper, right? 
But, the, but what, the, what they need, right, the, the pastors that they are to bring on are to be qualified, right? You see, what happens in most churches is that pastors will leave, a po- leave, right? They'll either retire or move on to some other job or some other, other position somewhere. And what ends up happening is they post an ad somewhere, and then hopefully they'll get a qualified candidate, right, on a piece of paper that they don't know nothing about, and hopefully they can interview him and listen to him preach two sermons and make a decision that this is a guy that I'm going to invest my life in. The church actually needs to have a theological foundation from which to really understand and measure a pastor by. The church needs to have a robust doctrine of the church so that it can actually clearly identify who actually is qualified and who is not qualified to lead. And even more than that, the church ought to be sufficiently grounded in the word enough and in the doctrines of the faith enough to be able to, to raise up and to train up within itself its own leaders. I'm going to say that again. Every church should be a factory that produces church leaders. Every church should be a factory that produces church leaders. The church ought to be sufficiently grounded in the Word of God and the doctrines of its faith to raise up and train up its own leaders. In fact, I don't know if you realize that that's actually part of the purpose of the church. That's part of the disciple-making process. One of the purposes of the church is to be theologically grounded in God's Word and the doctrines of the faith sufficiently that it produces elders and deacons and missionaries and church planters that continue to lead the local church and that also go out into the world and plant other churches. In fact, the church, I want you to hear me on this, the church is the only institution, the only God-given institution that has the authority to ordain anyone. This is something that we have lost sight of. There are so many people who can go online somewhere to some organization and pay 35 bucks and they get an ordination sticker. The church is the only God-given institution in the world that has the authority to ordain anyone. The local church should be building up and ordaining new church leaders continually. But it seems that most churches are content to be local gatherings who, who gather together once a week and do church together and end up relying on outsiders from Bible colleges and seminaries to come in and lead them. Now hear me, Bible colleges and seminaries are valuable resources, valuable resources to the church. I have a degree from Liberty University. I am now currently working through my master's degree from Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. These resources are important and valuable, and they're helpful, and praise the Lord, we have them. But understand, Bible colleges and seminaries don't build qualified leaders. Churches do. The church is the only qualified institution for ordaining leaders in the church. But the problem is the American church has become so theologically anemic that it can't discern who is a qualified elder, much less produce a church leader. Now, we're, we're going to talk more about this particular subject in the coming weeks as we look at the leadership of the church and its qualifications in chapter 3. But suffice it to say, a common problem in the church in every age has been the struggle to find and to build up and ordain qualified leaders of the church. And I believe, 
I believe it personally, it's a must for the local church to really sharpen our theology of, of the church and to build a program to grow and, and develop qualified elders and leaders and, and pastors internally. Now, before we move on from this, Paul says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, this phrase, different doctrine, is rendered as other doctrines or strange doctrines and even false doctrines in some of the other translations. And I want you to know all of those renderings are all are all pretty much on point. They are all pointing the same directions. These false teachers are teaching doctrines and theology that are not in alignment with orthodox doctrines of the church and faith. In fact, Paul in Galatians chapter 1 says, uh, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He goes on to say, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. The idea in both of these letters is the same. There are those who are teaching something different, and that difference is a distortion of the truth. They're teaching different doctrine, and that difference is heretical. They're teaching heresy. And Paul is telling Timothy, right, you just got to stop them. You got to tell them, you got to make them, whatever you got to do, you got to stop them. And he gives them the authority as an as Paul as an apostle gives him the authority to put a stop to that. Right Now, why is this such an important issue? Well, it's important because doctrine and theology matter. Right? If you heard me say anything before, that's one of the things you'll hear me say over and over again. Doctrine and theology matter, whether we want to believe it or not. Doctrine is the established teaching of the faith. It is the teaching that has been handed down to us by God through the apostles, and has been given to us today in His Word. There is an established orthodoxy that all Christians and all churches must hold to. There are essential things that we must believe to be in the kingdom. Otherwise, we're not. Otherwise, we're not Christians. Because if we don't hold these truths, we will fall prey to different and false doctrines. And what we need to understand is false teaching and false doctrine, let's just be clear, it is very, very dangerous. As, as we will see in this letter, and as we can witness in the world around us, false teaching and false doctrine leads into all kinds of danger. False teaching leads to behavioral problems within the church. The Ephesians faced all kinds of issues like greed and worldliness and licentiousness. They had strife and quarrels in the church. The church today faces all kinds of behavioral issues as well. As we talked about uh, last week, the Knox United Church in Canada ordains people who are living in unrepentant sin into the ministry. That is a behavioral problem in the church. Right? And they will marry anyone regardless of what the Bible says about the definition of biblical marriage. And on top of that, they will advocate for women's right to kill their own children. False teaching leads to radical behavioral problems in and out of the church. False teaching also leads to destruction. It leads, it just, false teaching destroys individual lives because it separates them from the gospel of grace. This is the thing I think we have to get our heads and our hearts wrapped around. Sometimes I think we want 
out of a genuine concern for other people and their feelings that sometimes I think we want to really soften up on this point here. But it's the truth. False teaching leads people to hell. It leads them away from from the grace of God. Our friends in a different church in our community, a very big church in our community, They believe that the gospel is is founded on works. They believe that the gospel is founded on Christ, who was a literal spirit baby of God. They believe that the gospel is founded on a Christ who had to work his way to become God. They believe that the gospel is not by just grace, but by grace after all that you can do. That gospel, brothers and sisters, will not save them. And these are some of the people that I really love and admire. These are people that I know. Like, I care about them. I see them. I talk to them. They're my friends. And I know they're going to hell. Why? Because they're believing a gospel that will not save them. False doctrines kills and destroys individual lives. And it's the same with the gospel that's being taught in the world today, that it's not about what God has done for you, but what God can do for you. Right? It's called the prosperity gospel. And people are, are not coming to Christ to be saved. They're coming to Christ so they can be blessed. But that kind of gospel will not lead to either salvation or blessing. False teaching destroys individuals. False teaching also destroys entire churches. It can actually take a Bible-believing church and completely turn it upside down and make it a den of Satan. It also destroys entire denominations. All across the Western world, there there are churches that are empty. Mainline Protestant churches that are empty. Big, glorious buildings that are empty. Why? Because there are denominations that in the interest of culture, bent and capitulated on the issue of the inerrancy and sufficiency and the authority of Scripture. Once they gave that up, they had nothing left. It was a slippery slope that ended in theological liberalism. And as a result, they turned biblical orthodoxy on its head, and now they're slowly dying and rotting in place. These once vibrant denominations. False teaching is so Destructive, and it destroys even whole communities. And it can even destroy nations. Look what's happening in our own nation. A nation that at one point was founded on the principles of the Bible. A nation that, that at least, by and large, trusted in God. A nation, really, if you look closely, was founded on the, the principles of the Protestant Reformation. Look at what's happening in Canada. I don't know if you realize it since we talked last time. Canada came out with a press conference. They are now officially a police state. Did you realize that? They're telling people now, you have, you have, you have to be inside right, after certain hours, and you can't go places unless you're going to work. And guess what? The police now have a right to stop you if you're in Canada. They can, they can stop people and say, where are you going? Why aren't you home? Turn around, go home. And if people won't comply, they'll arrest them. Right? We're on the, the downhill side of this, and Canada is doubling down. Why? Because 
Theologically speaking, the largest denomination in Canada, the United Church, has no, has no roots in the inerrancy of Scripture anymore. They've given up. They've bowed the knee to Caesar. And the reason, right? And the reason why it's so destructive in so many levels is that false teaching ultimately is of Satan himself. I want you to understand that. False teaching has its roots and its, its branches from Satan. In fact, what we see in the Garden of Eden is the very first instance of false teaching. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first thing he did was caused the woman to question the word of God. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, God knowing good and evil. Mankind was led to destruction. Right? The, the roots of the destruction that we face, all of the sin, all of the pain, all of the heartache that we face today emanates from the very first false teacher, Satan himself. And the devil himself has even tried his hand with Christ. I don't know if you realize that. He, he even quoted Scripture and tried to twist the truth when he tempted Jesus. If you remember in Luke chapter 4, right, it says, And he, that Satan, took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. He quotes Scripture and says, you, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall put, not put your Lord, your God, to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an appropriate, an opportune time. False teaching and false doctrine is of the devil. This, by the way, is why churches ought to be concerned to defend orthodoxy and orthodox doctrine, and they, why they should be concerned about the theology of their faith. This is why churches ought to be familiar with the historic creeds and confessions of our faith. This is why churches ought to have a robust confession or statement of faith. But so many people we've heard, in, especially in America, right? I don't care about theology. Just give me Jesus. I just want a simple faith. I don't need any creed but Christ. I don't care about doctrine. Doctrines divide. Have you heard that before? Brothers and sisters, we cannot live in that world. There's too much false teaching in the world around us. There's so much that we would be easy prey and swept away. That's why actually Paul wrote to the Ephesian churches years before this. In the letter he wrote to them, beginning in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, And he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, the pastors and elders of the church, right? To, and here's the purpose, why he gave them, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain unity of the faith and of the knowledge, look at this, the knowledge, the doctrine, the theology, the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure, 
and the sta- of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves carried around by every wind of doctrine, by cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Paul is saying very clearly, doctrine and theology matter. It matters for the leaders of the church. It matters for the members of the church. And it matters for all of you. Our church needs to grow in its understanding of doctrine and theology. You individually need to grow in understanding the orthodox doctrines in theology. There was a point in my life where my wife would say to me, theology, 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 all you ever talk about is theology. (laughs) But now, as she has grown in her faith, she understands why I talk so much about theology. She talks about theology a whole lot more. We, as a church, need all of us to mature in this area. It's vital and critical for all of us. Doctrine matters. That's why Paul tells Timothy so clearly, put an end to false teaching. And so he says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves, notice it says, devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. When when Paul uses the word nor here, I want you to realize he's not going to be talking about something different or other false, some other false teaching. What he's saying is these men need to not teach them, but also to be devoted or committed to them. And then he describes what these false teachings are. He says that they're myths and the endless genealogies. Now, when we get to this little part right here, I want you to realize there's lots and lots of opinions about the specific things that they may or may not have been teaching at the time. And the truth is that no one really for sure knows exactly, specifically what Paul's talking about here. We don't know the specific heresy that he's referring to. There's a lot of people that has a lot of good ideas and and there's a lot of papers written on the subject, but no one knows for sure, right? But it's safe to assume what these men are teaching is related to Jewish, to the Jewish faith, right? Because Paul says that they want to be teachers of the law, right? So so most scholars believe what what these men are were Hellenistic or Greek Jews who were over-spiritualizing and over-philosophizing the teachings of the Old Testament, right? Rather than sticking to the traditional way of interpreting texts and the hermeneutics that even Jesus himself used to interpret texts, they were basically over-allegorizing these texts. They were applying Greek philosophy in many instances to these texts And they would do that in combination with a lot of Jewish myths that popped up. One of the things that we lose sight of as as non-Jewish Christians is besides what we have in the Old Testament, there's a lot of Jewish literature and a lot of Jewish myths that really informed a lot how these people thought back then. And these men might have also been influenced by the Gnostics who taught this kind of dualistic philosophy that all flesh is bad and all spiritual things are good. Right? Either way, Right? What we know is this kind of teaching ended up being false, and it promotes what he says is speculations. Right? And again, that's a weird kind of rendering for this word, because when you look at the word, it's, it's zetasis. It, the, the meanings are kind of all over the place, right? Because zetasis could mean questions rather than speculations. It could mean debates. It could mean controversy. It could even mean a meaningless question, right? It's, 
it's really kind of like a weird kind of an expression, but the idea that Paul's driving at is this kind of teaching really doesn't lead anywhere profitable, right? It, it doesn't actually go anywhere that, that's helpful. It just leads further and further away of the, from the truth. False teaching ultimately is unprofitable. And notice he says that this false teaching promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Now, bear with me. I don't want to lose you in the weeds here, okay? But Paul is making actually a really big point here. I'll try to go bottom shelf as much as I can here. Right? What, he's, uh, what, what, he, what he's saying is false teaching leads to these weird speculations, right? And away from the stewardship that's from God. The implication of that then is that right teaching doesn't lead to speculation, but it leads to the stewardship from God, which then we should ask the question, what does that mean? What is this stewardship from God that Paul's talking to? Because this is obviously an important point that he's making. Well, the word stewardship means the management of household affairs. It means to administer, right? It, stewardship is, it says here, to, it's where you look, a person looks after another person's affairs. Now, now think about this, right? What are elders and pastors called to do? They are called to oversee or shepherd or to steward God's household, which is the church. Elders are supposed to look after or steward God's church. And false teaching leads away from that stewardship and towards speculation and useless, and, and useless religious ideas, right? That, and they don't care about God's church, but actually rather destroy God's church. Right? But on the other hand, true doctrine and true teaching leads to stewardship. It, it leads to taking care of God's household. You see, the way that pastors and elders are supposed to oversee the church and care for the church and to steward God's household is through the right teaching of His Word. It's through the rightly handling, rightly dividing the Word of God. In fact, Paul tells Timothy in the next letter that he writes to him, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of truth. That's the job of an elder. That's the job of a pastor, is to rightly handle the Word of God. And then Paul will go on and then say to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. That is the admonition of pastors. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. <clears throat> True ministers of the word are to be stewards of God's household and to protect orthodox doc doctrine. And they do that by rightly teaching, by rightly handling and teaching the word of God. Now, this is an important place, I believe, for us to pause briefly because we need to get clear about a couple of, of things. Because there's a misunderstanding in the American church with respect to pastors and elders, especially in the independent Baptist world. You see, for, for many American churches, they believe that each church needs to have one pastor and elder that leads the entire church. And that that guy is the man. 
This is a very common model in the American church right? that was adopted decades ago. And I believe with all my heart that this is a flawed model. By the way, it's the model that we have here, right? But I believe it's a flawed model because, because as I have taught before, and we'll cover again as we work through this letter through 1 Timothy, I believe that Scripture urges us on to have plural elders in the church, multiple pastors in the church, multiple or plural elders versus single elder. I believe that the church needs to have multiple elders that lead the church together, not just one individual. Now, you can still have one senior pastor who does the bulk of the heavy lifting in the ministry work, but I believe the church needs multiple qualified men who are ordained to be elders in the church. Because the church needs multiple elders. The needs in the church are great, even in a small church. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of teaching that needs to be done. There's a lot of ministry that needs to be done. And also, it's a dangerous position to be as a church when you only have one theologically trained person leading the church, and especially being independent of outside influences means there's no external oversight. I feel strongly that every church ought to have multiple qualified elders to lead the church. That's number one, and we'll talk more about that as we go along in the coming weeks. But the second mistaken belief in the American church is this unrealistic expectation that pastors and elders of the church are to be all things to all people. This is a horrendous, horrendous mistake that we've made. There's an expectation that pastor needs to be the chief theologian, the, the teaching pastor, the worship leader, the administrator, the general contractor, counselor, janitor, graphic arts designer, website developer, and chief bottle washer. Seriously. They just, I mean, there's just an expectation that pastors are superhuman and can do it all. And if they're not, then they expect the pastor's wife to be able to. Pastors are expected to preach on Sunday, teach classes, lead Bible studies, visit everyone, check up on everyone in the hospital, give food to the homeless, give rides in the middle of the night, and never, ever forget anybody's birthday ever. Right. And then on top of that, always have time to talk. But after nine years of ministry, I'm here to tell you, this is an impossible expectation to live up to. Right. It just simply cannot be done. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that it's not supposed to even be that way. The primary role of elders and pastors is the ministry of the Word of God. They, the way in which they are to oversee the church and steward God's church is by carefully teaching the Word of God and investing in them and helping the church to become theologically grounded so they know themselves what the will of God is. And that, I want you to know, by itself requires hours and hours of prayer and reading and study. In fact, just yesterday, I was in the office for 14 hours preparing for this morning, not to mention the four hours I spent here before we got started. Right? The, effect, the effective ministry of pastors is to effectively preach the Word of God, and it requires a lot of time. And if a church is to be healthy, if a church is to have strong theological foundation so that it doesn't drift away into error from Christ and from the gospel, like so many churches and elders, so many churches have, elders must primarily be focused on the things of the Word. They need to be experts in the Word of God and the doctrines of faith. That way, right, that way they can actually love people the way they need to be loved. That, by the way, is also why the office of deacon was invented. 
Just read chapter 6 of, 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 uh, of Acts, and you will figure that out, right? Deacons are servants in the church who meet practical needs in the church, and we'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But this is also why Paul, again, says that pastors and teachers were given to the church to equip theologically the saints, all of the church members, all believers for the work of the ministry. Because all of us, all of you, right, are supposed to be on the ministry team. Every single one of you, all believers, would be helping to build up the body of Christ through some sort of ministry. You were all called to be involved somewhere. Now again, with that being said, Paul makes it clear that unqualified elders and, and false teachers don't steward the church the way that God calls them to, but rather this false teaching leads to vain speculations and that does nothing to serve to build up the church. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to command them to stop false teaching. But I want you to notice, right, the heart really of what he's getting at here. He says in verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. I want you to think about this for a second. Sometimes when we are in ministry, and sometimes when we're loving people, and sometimes when things are hard and people are jerks and you're bumping your head against stuff, sometimes it's easy to forget that the aim of what we're doing is love, right? But Paul says, the aim of our charge is love. Paul says that the aim of, or the goal of this command is not simply to put people in their place. The aim is not simply to, to exert Paul's apostolic authority and show them who's boss. The aim is not even to humiliate anyone. The aim is not to demand that even the church does everything the same way that all of the churches do them. He says the aim of this command to stop false teaching is love. The goal of Paul leaving Timothy in Ephesus to take control of this church ultimately is love. It's for the love of God. It's for the love of the church. It's even for the love of those people who are in error. The goal of Paul's order is love. And I'm not talking, Paul is not talking about some emotional sentimentality here. All right, that's not even the word that he uses. He uses the word agape, which is a love of the, of the will, a volitional love. This is a self-sacrificing love, a love of choice, a love that loves and does what it needs to do even when it's hard, a love that, that chooses to do right even if that means it's painful. It's a christ like kind of love. You see, it takes that kind of love to stand up for the truth. Because true love tells the truth. True love stands up for orthodoxy. True love confronts error. True love does what is right, even when it's hard. That's why I say things like, you know I love you, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Paul says the goal of this very difficult assignment is to, to confront these false teachers, is to make them stop teaching these destructive errors. The, the goal of that is love, right? It is loving God, it is loving that church, and it's even loving the men that are in error there, ultimately. And he says this love issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this word that gets translated that, that says issues from really has a wide range of meaning. But the simplest way to say this, that it actually, this love comes out of something, right? This love comes from inside something. And what it comes out of is a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. And I want you to realize we can spend all Sunday just on those three things alone. 
right? But they themselves come from something. They come from someplace. They come from within someone who is truly in Christ. A person who has been converted and born again and who is in Christ, right? And who has Christ in them, that person has a new heart, a pure heart, a heart that longs for God and a heart that hates sin. Now, they're not going to be perfect this side of heaven, but they still have a new heart and a new nature. And anyone who's in Christ will have a good conscience because they know who they are in Christ and they're made clean. Now, it's not to say they won't ever have regrets, but their conscience will work like it's supposed to work, which means when they are in sin, their conscience will pierce their hearts and they will repent. That good conscience will lead them to right action. And anyone who is in Christ will have a sincere faith, a genuine faith. By definition, if they don't, they're not in Christ. We're saved by grace alone, but through faith alone. And that faith has to be real. A genuine faith is a sincere faith. This kind of selfless agape love can only come from someone who is truly regenerate and born again, which is not the case with these false teachers. Paul says certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussions. Paul says that these false teachers have swerved away from this love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. They have swerved and walked away from these things. You see, in this letter, Paul is going to actually, as we go along, you'll see, he will contrast these false teachers with that kind of love. He will say that these false teachers, rather than having pure hearts, will have impure motives. Rather than having a good conscience, it will say that they have defiled consciences. And rather than having a sincere faith, what does he say about their faith? That it's shipwrecked. Their teaching doesn't come from love. This teaching comes from something else. They have wandered away from these things into vain discussions, meaningless controversies. You see, false teachers don't produce healthy outcomes. They produce division, destruction, and doom because that is what's in them. There's no real love in them. Their motives are different. In fact, Paul tells us what their motives are. He says, desiring to be teachers of the law. Now understand, he's not talking simply about being teachers or pastors. Right? What he's saying, when he says teachers of the law, he's thinking specifically of a category. He's talking about the famous teachers of the law in Judaism. Like, yeah, how do you say that again? Gamaliel. I always struggle to say that. Gamaliel. Right? They want to be like him. Right? They want to be the, the well-respected men. They want to be the popular men. They want to be those men who, who are financially set. They want to be celebrities. That's really what they want. These false teachers are not doing what they're doing because they care and because they love the people. They're doing it because they, they're selfish and they're greedy. By the way, this is the problem that continues to plague the church today. It was greed and selfishness that led to the sale of indulgences in the 16th century. And it's greed and selfishness that has led so many false teachers today, prosperity preachers, men-centered teachers, and all these, these feel-good conference speakers. They want to be well thought of. They want to be popular. They, they want to get paid well. The early church faced the same exact kind of issues. These self-interested false teachers were leading the church into deep error. And notice Paul says that without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions, 
if there's one thing that false teachers will never lack, is confidence. Just watch them on TV. In my years of ministry and running across false teachers and self-appointed ministers and unqualified pastors, the one thing I can say that they all have is confidence in their point of view. They make bold, confident assertions and proclamations about what they believe and teach. But it doesn't take a theology degree to see that they don't have any idea what they're talking about. False teachers use their confidence to hide the fact that they're unqualified. And this has been a problem that has been faced for many centuries. Now, with all of that, let's just quickly review where we've been so far. The church is God's church. It's to be ran the way that God says it is to be ran. God has ordained leaders for the church, and He's invested authority into those leaders. But the church in Ephesus was taken over by unqualified leaders who taught false doctrines. And we see that false teachers do what they do for selfish gain, and they lead the church into great error and destruction. But we also see that true love tells the truth and stands up for orthodoxy for the church, and it demands out of love that false teachings cease, and this love can only come from those who are truly in Christ. Now, as we look at this, how do we, because we covered a lot of ground. Let's think about application now. And when we do, I want to think about our church right here. First Baptist Church right here in Boron. Because we actually hear, there's a real problem that we actually find ourselves facing. Maybe not now, but at some point, possibly. You see, we are an independent Baptist church, which means there is no external authority over our church at all. There's none. It's funny. I talk to some people who say, well, what are your higher-ups say? I'm like, higher-ups, what are you talking about? The only higher-up that this guy has is Jesus. I don't have a manager. I don't have a bishop. I don't have anybody to report to except Jesus and this church family. That's it. Right? So there is no higher-ups that, that can come in here and straighten out a pastor if he's in error. I don't know if you realize that or not, right? That's the, one of the deficiencies of our church model here. Right? If, if I or some future pastor fell into some grave theological error, there's not going to be anybody from the outside coming in here and saying, hey, guess what? You need to stop teaching. They just don't have the authority to do that. And there is no new apostles like Paul who's going to come in here and proclaim, thou shalt better stop teaching that, right? It's just not going to happen. There is no external mechanism to correct theological error here, right? Which, by the way, I don't know if you realize, is why our church over its 83 years has had some pretty big theological shits. The church, I don't know if you realize, at some point was a Southern Baptist church, right? And then it became an American Baptist church. And if, uh, if you want to know those two denominations, what they have in common is the word Baptist, and that's about it, right? I mean, there are some, they, they wildly have different perspectives on a lot of theological issues. Now, it wasn't quite as bad, you know, 40 years ago, but that division has grown, but the church has had a number of theological shifts in the last 83 years, and correcting error hasn't always been easy. The lack of external mechanisms is a challenge to a small independent church like us, right? Which means theological error must be corrected internally. It must come from inside the church. By the way, the way our bylaws, our current ones, are currently written makes that difficult to do too. I don't know if you realize it. The bylaws, which were in place when I first got here, by decades, by the way, 
that are still in effect right now pretty much establish the fact that the pastor is the leader of the church in every way. <clears throat> and he basically has the authority to run the church how he sees fit. And if you read the bylaws closely, you'll discover it's extremely difficult to get rid of a pastor, even if he's in error. In fact, the only way that a congregation can get rid of a pastor in this church is to prove that he is in, he's violated the bylaws somehow, or he has violated the statement of faith somehow. And once you can prove that, then only and only then can you then bring it forward to the congregation for a vote, and that vote has to pass by three-quarters majority. Otherwise, you're stuck with them. And then, even if you get all the votes that you need, you still have to be able to stand up against all the legal challenges. And being there's only one theologian in the church, that might be difficult. Now, the reason why I mention this is because I love this church. I love this church, and I want what's best for this church now and long into the future. I want what's best for the immediate future and the distant future. I want this church to be an instrument that God has ordained for it to be. Right? Whether I'm the pastor here or some future pastor long into the future. I mean, we've had, I think, 13 other pastors in this church in its history. I want First Baptist Church, as long as I'm here and long after, to be a gospel-focused, Christ-centered, biblically-founded, theologically-stable church that glorifies God. And I want it to be that way all the way until Christ returns, whether that's next year or 100 years from now. And I personally believe for that to happen, this church needs to grow in the way that it can, under the leadership of Christ, self-govern and self-correct if they happen, happens to be an error that gets introduced. Because we see it throughout history. We see it in the Bible. But the question is, how do we do that then? How do we get there? Well, this is something I've been thinking about and praying about and talking about with the deacons and the leaders of this church for several years now. This is a problem that's vexed me greatly, by the way, because I've thought oftentimes, what happens if something happens to me? You guys are going to put an ad up somewhere, and you, hopefully you'll find someone who really is strong in the faith and orthodoxy, and that will actually lead this congregation where it needs to go. Right. Also, by the way, this was one of the issues that when we went to, to borrow money years ago, one institution said no. I was like, why? Because there's too much authority invested in one pastor. That's what they said. I was like, I never thought about it that way. But you're right. So how do we, what do we do here? Well, there are three things I want us to, as a church to pray about and consider. Three things that I think we should talk about and that we will talk about more in the coming months. Right. Three things I hope that we will adopt as time goes on. But let's start with the simplest ones, the easiest ones to talk about. I believe that what we need to do as a church is to move to amend our bylaws. And I believe we need to amend them in a way that moves from single elder to plural elders. That way, the theological leadership of this church is not invested in simply one qualified man, but multiple men who all have the same commitment and the same heart. Now, this will certainly require that we train up and develop and ordain a number of additional men to become elders in First Baptist Church if, as God calls them. And believe me, it's going to take time and, and certainly will take some work, but I believe that this will give First Baptist Church the long-term theological stability it needs 
to be a productive church for years and decades to come. I believe that is the right way for us as a church to go forward. Secondly, I believe that the elders of this church should be trained in and agree to uphold the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And the reason why I believe this is because this confession theologically is more robust. It is more filled out than simply the, the, the 2000 Baptist faith and message that we have as a statement of faith. Not to mention, it is built on the work of those who stood in the gap to bring the church back to center in Christ during the Reformation. This is a document that came right out of the Reformation. And so it addresses a lot of the issues that churches faces today. The 1689 also connects us historically to the founders of the Baptists, the, the founders of our Baptist denomination, right? And, and I believe it provides deep theological foundation for the elders, right? For them to be able to minister to this church, especially those who teach. It will give even the church a foundation by which that it can judge what is being taught. It's two. Third, this is probably the most important, and this is probably going to be the most difficult one to accomplish, but we need to continue to work towards growing and maturing a committed church membership. We need to help all of the members, all of the members, all of the members of this church to mature theologically and to grow in their faith. Right, And that involves a lot, I know, right? but a lot's at stake here. Number one, we need to help you to grow to be as a student of the Word, which means you need to read the Word, study the Word, memorize the Word, and grow in your understanding of the Word. Because as a member of the church, you are all supposed to be Bereans. Every single one of you is supposed to be able to take what I said here from the pulpit and double-check and make sure that I didn't say something wrong. Because guess what? The only infallible words are these ones. Right? You need to be able to go to the Scriptures and confirm what I say. And the membership of this church right, is really, the church members is the final mechanism to correct error. You are the bottom line. right? You need to know the Word. You also need to become a student of our faith. Our statement of faith that we hold every member to is the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. It is a very clear and simple statement of faith, right? And it's not really hard to read, but it is a good theological foundation to talk about what we believe as Baptists, and I believe that every member needs to read it, understand it, because it provides a framework, again, to measure orthodoxy. If I teach something that's outside of that or in conflict with that, then you ought to know. We also need to be a student of the church. I've said this before, I'll say it again. Y'all need to read the bylaws and know them, right? because it determines the functions of how this church works. And if we change those bylaws, you need to read those and understand those as well too. You ought to be able to know how you as a church can affect the changes that need to be affected. You also need to be disciples and disciple makers, which means you need to continue to grow in your faith and you need to help to build up the church by growing other people in the faith. And then finally, you need to be a committed member of the church. And I say this lovingly and respectfully. There are many of you that, that will define this, and there are many of you who were, are almost there, and some of you might even be like halfway there, right? 
But you need to be a committed member of the church, a committed member, meaning committed to being here, to worship the Lord consistently, to hear the words preached regularly, and to, and, and by all means, right, even if you teach a class or, or you're doing something else that takes you away from what's being here, to consistently go back and pick up what you miss because this church is going somewhere every single Sunday. It also means being committed to supporting the work here through giving. And I don't talk a whole lot about giving here in the church because I believe that that comes from spiritual maturity. It's not my job to, to bend people's arms or cajole people. And I personally have always hated those pastors that want to give people guilt trips when it comes to this subject here. But I believe that maturing your faith is just a byproduct, uh, that giving is a byproduct of that. God loves a, a cheerful giver. And then you need to be committed to service. All of you, as we've talked about, if you're in Christ, we're called to be in the ministry somewhere, whether it's singing or organizing food drives or working in the nursery or mopping the floor or counseling or sending out invitations or whatever it is. Everyone has been gifted and everyone has been called into the ministry somewhere in the church. And all of those things contribute, all of these things contribute to the maturity of the body. And I believe as this church grows theologically and matures in its faith, then the issues of falling away or drifting away will be a thing of the past for First Baptist Church. Now, if that is, if you're in Christ, my admonition to you is to think on these things and to pray about these things. If you're not in Christ, I want to call you to repent and believe the gospel. I want to call you to put your faith in Jesus Christ today. You were a sinner in rebellion to God and He died to make atonement for you. And that He's called you to one thing, repent turn away from your old life and believe and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That is my call for you to repent and believe the gospel. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.